Thanks so much for choosing our podcast. Before you start this episode, this is Kellen Erskine from the future. If you're listening to the book pile for the first time, I highly recommend starting on a later episode after we hit our stride. Some of my all-time favorites are when we cover the books The Hunger Games, 1984, and The Roasts of the Da Vinci Code, or any of the Twilight Roasts. If you're here because you already like the podcast and want to binge from the beginning, then thanks again. New episodes every Monday. Hey everyone, do you ever think, man, in the midst of this sky-high unemployment, what I really need is someone telling me to throw away my material possessions? Then have we got a book for you, The Life-Changing Magic of Tidying Up by Marie Kondo. I'm Kellen Erskine. I'm a comic, a father, and in my 20s I thought I was a minimalist, but it turns out I was just poor. (laughs) And I come from a family of maximalists, both in terms of spending and reproduction. (laughs) Maria Kondo is a world-renowned tiding expert, and this book is based on essentially two central premises. One, get rid of anything that doesn't spark joy, and two, have a designated place for everything that remains. And this is the book pile. So Dave, you, you've you actually done everything in this book, correct? You've tidied? I have. Up. So I've, I've done it. She says in the book that if you do it once, you'll never rebound. Um, but I've done it three times. So I don't think that it's quite true. And I really did is try to- Is this a book about heroin? <laughs> <laughs> now, when I go through and implement the book, it really does make like a huge difference. I feel so good in my room and I look around and it's basically only things that I love left. Now you live alone. So how many things do you have, Dave? <laughs> how many, you want me to count individually the things I have? <laughs> I do live with uh, with roommates. Um, let's see. I have one desk and no family, <laughs> a piano and no family. Grab the tissues. This is going to be one of those episodes. <laughs> That's just what you do when you come home. Like a like a <laughs> devastating good night moon book. <laughs> but you're just <laughs> Good night, no one. <laughs> All right, without further ado, here are our favorite lessons from the life-changing magic of tidying up. Number one, get rid of anything that doesn't spark joy. So when Marie was 15, she read this book called The Art of Discarding. And at the end of those three years, she said that she just felt exhausted. The space still didn't feel very tidy because sometimes she'd get so stressed that she would go stress shopping. She just felt kind of like anxious and negative about the space. And finally, she had this realization where she said, we shouldn't be choosing what we want to discard. We should be choosing what we want to keep. And once she had that realization, she developed her method, which is the central method of the book, which is you hold an item in your hand and you ask, does it spark joy? And if it does, you keep it. And if it doesn't, you discard it. And actually, the Japanese word she uses for spark joy literally means to throb. So it was almost a very different book. (laughs) So it's kind of fascinating to me how you can change so much just by flipping the question. You know, in this case, it's what should I keep, not what should I throw away? It kind of reminds me of how the positive psychology movement started because you had psychologists like Martin Seligman who said, okay, instead of asking what makes people unwell, which is what psychology has been asking for decades now, what if we asked what makes people happy or what makes people flourish? And the answer was love. Bottomy. <laughs> yes. If we just cut into the skull of JFK's sister, oh, God. did you know that that happened? No. Apparently, JFK's sister I know was it happened just like to him. <laughs> Dark. So apparently, she was just this like very vivacious girl, and then her dad found her to be a little too willful, and so without telling the family or the mom or getting the girl's permission, 
he had a lobotomy performed on her and she was just kind of a vegetable the rest of her life. Oh my word. But the takeaway for me, I mean, once psychology flipped that question, you started seeing all this amazing research on happiness and gratitude and things like that. And so the takeaway for me is you often get these major insights just by flipping the question. Like another good trick is if your spouse asks when you cheated, you ask, when did I not cheat? Oh, wow. (laughs) That was a very (laughs) delayed laugh. Were you thinking about something else? I was. <laughs> okay. Because you said, oh, wow, like I made a really like deep point. No, I, and then you laughed. And then I realized I find myself doing that. It's this difficult balance of remaining present, but also trying to think of a joke. And I find that like during right. an edit, I'll hear things that I did not hear you say. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> Okay. So I do, I do, I love this idea of getting rid of things for this reason of how they make you feel. Instead of asking yourself, mm. I might need this in seven years, you never know. Instead, right. uh, everything that you see gives you an emotional response, whether or not you realize it. So then being aware of it and focused on that, then the idea is to then have a house filled with things that make you feel good. And she says, right. it is much more difficult to get rid of things when there is no compelling reason. I think her method, I have this theory that it works because it helps get us past the endowment effect. So there's this psychological bias we all have called the endowment effect where we overvalue something just because it's ours. So there's this like famous experiment at Duke. They took these students who entered the lottery for Duke basketball tickets and randomly some win, some lose. And they asked the losers, what's the most you would pay for a ticket? And they'd say 175 bucks. And then they asked the winners, what's the least you would sell your ticket for? And they said $2,400. So it was totally random. They're basically the same students. But the ones who had the ticket valued it as like 14 times more valuable just because it was already theirs. And I think Maria Kondo's method forces you to have such a high bar for whether you want to keep stuff. And I think it helps us because we just tend to overvalue our things. So I I think her method forces you to ask, do I just like this thing because it's already mine? I think it's uh, it's important to understand that all of us fall under this. It's very easy to, to judge hoarders. Because you're like, oh, that's disgusting. Just like piles of National Geographics that you're walking around. But like everyone has like shirts in their shirt drawer that you never wear. But you think, ah, but you know, one day I might paint my house. (laughs) There is one part of the central premise that I disagree with. And it's just, I think there's some things that you just need. Like even if they don't spark joy. Like I... I need a screwdriver. It doesn't spark joy for me because I'm not a serial killer, but I'm not going to like throw my screwdriver away because I still need it. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. No one keeps insulin because they're following their bliss. They just need the insulin. That is a very creepy image. The guy in Home Depot who approaches an employee with a twinkle in his eye and he's like, (laughs) where are your Phillips? (laughs) Yes, my darling. (laughs) If you see a guy petting the tools, go ahead and minority <laughs> report that guy. <laughs> I'm probably not remembering that movie correctly, but my recollection of it is that the minority report program was actually really good. Yeah, oh, it was incredibly effective. Yeah. It shows you how much we love Tom Cruise because the movie opens with a news story saying that crime has been reduced by 99.9%. But then 20 minutes in, Tom Cruise is accused of a crime, and we're like, 
No. <laughs> no way. Yeah, in in real life, if you had something that got rid of all murder and they were like, yeah, but it has falsely accused two people, we'd all be like, yeah, I'm comfortable with that. <laughs> yes. <laughs> all right. Lesson two. Tidying is a learned skill. She frames it in that way, which makes it interesting. People even label themselves as like, I'm not very organized. This person is Mm -hmm. organized. When really, whoever that is, I mean, we've covered this in other books, that like, it's not so much that people are gifted. It's more just that they have done more of that thing than you have. So maybe she's more naturally inclined to organize things. But the reason she's so good at it is because she's doing it. And she's saying, you can learn it too. This isn't just, this isn't a case of like, it's just not me or it's not in my genes. You wouldn't portray not being able to play piano as a personality trait. (laughs) It's just like, oh no, you just haven't developed the skill of piano. You haven't developed the skill of tidying. Right. She brings it up like they should teach this in schools, which I, I think is interesting. Just that concept too, in general, of like what should be taught in school, like what's a life skill that is maybe more important than learning about the fall of the Roman Empire. Like, I know that we're supposed to... Okay, first of all, nothing. (laughs) But maybe maybe you could learn that as as a politician. But like, as a 15-year-old, maybe it is more important to learn where to put stuff. (laughs) Or how to start a savings account. Right. What's a class that you think should be taught in high school that isn't? For me... I think they should have classes on time management, stress management, meditation, and horseshoes. I think those would be (laughs) my four. Every three years or so, I I find myself in a game of horseshoes with someone, (laughs) and I always wish that I was better at it. Like, (laughs) it's one of those games that it's so intuitive, but it seems like it should be much easier than it actually is. One of my favorite jokes that never worked, and it it also didn't work as a tweet, which is when you know a joke <laughs> really is. Because even like if a joke never works on stage, you can throw it on Twitter, it gets a few likes, and you can pretend like it's killing out yeah. there in the void. But this one got nothing in either of those <laughs> venues, but I still stand by it. So you're going to try it in a third venue. Yeah. <laughs> The joke was something like, fencing is the only sport other than horseshoes where the object is to kill the other person. (laughs) I get the fencing part. I don't know if I get the horseshoes part. Uh, Neither did anyone else. But I just, like, (laughs) to me it was like whatever your imagination filled in. (laughs) I do agree with her that tidying is a skill. I sort of had this epiphany this year that almost anything is a skill that can be practiced and learned. Like horseshoes. I, yes. <laughs> I'm just going to concede the horseshoe point to you so that we don't come back to it. <laughs> you know, I bet it was just horses that were telling everyone not to like my tweet. <laughs> They're like, we can't do it because we don't have thumbs or fingers, but you better not like that either. So, <laughs> go on. I bomb with every horse joke. You just you just take the reins from here. <laughs> so the way I had that realization, apparently Bill Clinton has just this photographic memory for names where he can meet you once and see you years later and he'll remember your name. Uh, and for context, this week I saw my neighbor Kyle and I called him Zach. And then I was like, wait, I don't even know a Zach. And then I looked in my phone and I know three Zachs. <laughs> <laughs> 
So anyway, I always thought just Bill Clinton had like a special gift for names. And then I learned this year that he used to keep this giant Rolodex where he would write down everyone's name and how he met them until he just developed this incredible skill for remembering names. And my takeaway was you can practice virtually anything till you're amazing at it, even if it doesn't seem like a practicable skill. And I think tidying is definitely on that list. All right. Lesson three, visualize what you want your space to be. So she talks about how important it is to have like a goal and a vision for what you want the space to be and how it helps you not rebound immediately. So she gives an example of what one of her clients envisioned. Here's what she wrote. When I come home from work, the floor would be clear of clutter in my room as tidy as a hotel suite with nothing obstructing the line of sight. I would have a bath, burn aromatherapy oils, and listen to classical piano or violin while doing yoga and drinking herbal tea. I would fall asleep with a feeling of unhurried spaciousness. So I just love the detail of that vision. I think I agree with her point that having this clear of a vision can be very motivating to prevent you from rebounding. I do not have that clear of a vision for my space. No, I was just comparing everything that she said to me last night with Pepsi and Doritos watching reruns of The West Wing. (laughs) But maybe once I tidy things up, I'll start taking baths again. (laughs) Now... There is research on why that kind of vision is so helpful. So Stanford has this professor named Kelly McGonigal because she couldn't get tenure at Hogwarts. And she talks about (laughs) this idea where when you mess up, you can try to fix it two ways. You can try to fix it with the guilt method or the goal method. So like, say you're trying to stay off sugar, but then you eat this whole cake. The guilt method would be, you know, you feel bad. You think I have no discipline. I'm a failure, et cetera. Something we've all kind of done. Or that's also how we were raised. Oh, we put it on our parents? No, our parents made us feel guilty. It was a stretch of a joke. Okay. <laughs> Go back to horseshoe material. <laughs> <Huge>. <laughs> or we can use the goal method, which is you think about your goal, like, you know, I want to be healthy, I want to live longer, and then you think, okay, this choice doesn't help me with that goal. I'm going to make a different choice next time. And you come away not hating yourself. And McGonagall finds that the goal method works a lot better than the guilt method. I feel like you get something very similar with the life-changing magic of tidying up. When your place is messy, you can use the guilt method of thinking, oh man, I'm a slob, I'm always going to be dirty. Or you can use the goal method of, okay, here's the space I envisioned. The things I'm doing right now don't help me get there, so what am I going to change to get there? All right, lesson four, don't stack stuff. (laughs) Growing up, we had a a game cupboard. It was actually just like a, Mm. a high shelf in a closet. It was above a row of raincoats. So the games were already higher than all of us were as kids. And if you wanted to get... That's s- like... Mm-hmm. It's like a perfect Home Alone booby trap to just have tiles rain down on it, you. <laughs> it was literally like that. Like if you wanted to get something out like Battleship, you had to hold all the other games above it at bay because they were all stacked on top of each other. Like we had a chess set made of stone. <laughs> Like a marble base, but to get that, you had to like hold it back. The moment in Harry Potter where Ron gets knocked out by a stone chess piece, you've lived. (laughs) You don't have to imagine. Imagine the entire board coming at your forehead. (laughs) It's like you had to play a larger game of Jenga just to get Jenga down. (laughs) Like it was a very very meta. Yeah, very meta game closet. Like if if you wanted to play life, you had to give the closet a baby. (laughs) in that harry potter chess scene it's always bothered me that ron is this chess genius and then instead of making two of them the king and queen he assigns them very expendable pieces like he's a knight and i think hermione's a bishop (laughs) 
Harry Potter is my favorite book series of all time. Oh, mine too. Aside from, you know, Fifty Shades. But the one (laughs) thing that, the most significant thing that bothers me is the fact that Ron, in all of the books, is sort of a dunce who copies other people's homework and never Uh has good advice. But then he is a chess genius. (laughs) <laughs> so the point of all that is that now with our game cupboard that I have um, in my house, everything is stacked side by side, just like books. Mm. So you can pull something out without everything raining down on you. Yeah. Which I think maybe maybe my parents actually did it deliberately. It's actually kind of a genius <laughs> move because then you put the games that take seven hours to play like Monopoly um, on the bottom. On the bottom. And they're just like, oh, can't really get that one out. How about we play Go Fish with eight cards? <laughs> <laughs> All right, number five. This is a real quick one. Tidy quickly. And she gives two reasons. The first is if you do this all at once, it's helpful because you don't run out of willpower before it's done. And then the second is if you do it all at once, you kind of just feel this profound difference where, you know, the next day your space is just so much tidier and you're less likely to relapse. And I can speak to definitely feeling that difference every time I go through this process. Like I just walk in and I feel so bright and I feel much more energized and I just love everything in my space. It's just a very rejuvenating thing to feel when you do it all at once. Do it all at once, just like when Anakin Skywalker tidied up those young Jedi classes. (laughs) Okay, number six. Clothes are sentient beings. (laughs) This is one of the the wackier parts of the book. Like she will she'll introduce like a new practical, objectively superior idea like that, like fold your shirts in a way that they can be lined side by side in one layer so you can see them all. But then she'll follow it with because those shirts work hard for you and they need a comfortable place to rest. That is, that's not a joke. That is directly from the book. And it, <laughs> it reminds me, uh, like, first of all, I imagine that like when she f- was pitching book titles, uh, the first one is like, how about this? <clears throat> My pants are alive. <laughs> and they're like, well, no, I mean, that sounds like a different genre. But it's- yeah, it sounds like a pickup line. <laughs> I mean, she literally says on page 191, your possessions want to help you. (laughs) I think it's okay to have like a reverence and a respect for your things. But I mean, what does she think of cutoffs? (laughs) Probably that they're in agony. Like she just... I'm wearing cutoffs as we speak, by the way. (laughs) Now I'm in agony just picturing that. (laughs) Wait, shirt? Maybe clothes? Shirt or shorts? Are you <laughs> shorts. pulling a Larry the Cable guy? Okay. I bet um, she, I bet for sure she thinks the sound of music is a horror movie. Oh, when they cut up the curtains and turn them into clothes. <laughs> yeah. Also, uh, when you talked about her pitching titles for the book, I think the actual title of the book is very funny because the subtitle is The Japanese Art of Decluttering and Organizing. <laughs> like, This isn't an ancient Japanese custom. She is one Japanese person, and it's her method. Can you imagine writing a book on comedy and calling it The American Art of Comedy? Oh, man. I can almost guarantee that her subtitle was chosen by some white publisher who was like, how do we make it sound like it's tapping into ancient wisdom? (laughs) 
So like everything, she feels like everything has this living energy. Can you imagine how she would react if someone stole her purse? Like she, <laughs> she would be like Liam Neeson. <laughs> and if she like, she finds the perpetrator and like aims her gun at him. And right before she pulls the trigger, she's just talking to her assailant's jacket. She's like, this wasn't meant for you. <laughs> It does seem like if you think clothes are alive, then every movie becomes a Pixar movie. (laughs) All right. To recap, our favorite lessons from the life-changing magic of tidying up. Number one, get rid of anything that doesn't spark joy. Number two, tidying is a skill. Number three, visualize what you want your space to be. Number four, don't stack stuff. Number five, tidy quickly. And number six, your clothes are alive and can feel pain. (laughs) 